The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. Brandon. All right, welcome back to the Brandon Peter Show and our Tim Burton's Big Retrospective Series. Tim Burton. Which also features Scott Mendelson from The Rap. Always a pleasure to be here. Thank oh. you for having me. Oh, yes. Uh, this third installment of the series will feature us discussing. For the, like, 80th time on the internet or on page from Scott and I, 1989's Batman, uh, 1990's Edward Scissorhands, 1992's Batman Returns, and 1993's Tim Burton produced The Nightmare Before Christmas. So, Had, had you seen Batman before recording this podcast? Not in this lifetime. Yeah, yeah. It's new to me, too. I'm a multiverse, Brandon. I have not. This one, this one doesn't know what that is. Uh, so we're Scott. We're in the midst of our Burton's like run or mm-hmm. the sweet spot with knockout after knockout, artistically or financially, and probably one of the greatest we've seen from a director in history. Yes, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm not going to you know compare and contrast Hitchcock's run and the you know what, but even the I'm the one of one everybody of. loves Vertigo now, but it was not a huge hit back nope. then. In our um, lifetime. Well, no one yeah. like like John Carpenter has an insane run of movies yeah. f- starting with Assault on Pre- Precinct 13, or you could start at Halloween if you want. But starting with Assault on Pre- Th- Precinct 13 all the way through They Live is just insane. Uh, Dario Argento also has a gigantic run that is now appreciated. Yes. But at the time, Carpenter's and, and Argento's runs were not like super appreciated. Christopher Nolan goes on as a good run uh, in his his wheelhouse um bad. but like this is Burton's right here this is where yeah, this is this is that you know 85 to 99 you know when people think of even though obviously he's been around longer than that period if that makes sense mm-hmm. when people think of Burton they tend to think of from Pee-wee to Sleepy Hollow right um and taking off from the last episode i would say the last one we did Beetlejuice on that episode through the end of today's episode is probably what defines him in terms yes. of what people think a Tim Burton film looks like. Uh, absolutely. Um, and, you know, this was, uh, he had been hired to direct Batman on the strength of, uh, the presumed strength of Beetlejuice. Mm-hmm. And they waited until the film opened well and got decent reviews before signing on the dotted line. Um, and this was, you know, obviously there weren't that many films of this size and scale made all the time in Hollywood back in 1989. So when I say, oh, it's weird for this artsy fartsy weirdo director to get, yeah, to get, you know, a movie like Batman. Well, like there weren't that many movies like Batman anyway. Yeah. So um, let's, let's go right into Batman. The real story, the love story, a woman in danger, a hero in black, the adventure you've been waiting for. Where does he get those? 
those wonderful toys. What are you? I'm Batman. Ready PG-13, June 23rd. So, of course, he directs it. It's written by Warren Skirin, uh from a story by Sam Hamm, characters by Bob Kane and Bill Finger, right? And Bill we, Finger. That's what we do now. <laughs> and, and Jerry Robinson. And Jerry Robinson. Uh, the, starring Jack Nicholson, Michael Keaton, Kim Basinger, some say Bassinger, Basinger, Bassinger, blah, 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 blah. But uh, Robert Wool, B- Billy D. Williams, Michael Goff, Jack Palance. Jerry Hall, Pat Hingle, Tracy Walter, William Hootkins, and Lee Wallace. Uh, the Dark Knight of Gotham City begins his war on crime, with his first major enemy being Jack Napier, a criminal who becomes the clownishly homicidal Joker. Score by Danny Elfman, featuring music by Prince. And Scott, before we begin the discussion on Batman, we must start with... Hello. Gotham Corner Store. Yes, we seem to be down to our last diet cook. A gentleman is on his way to pick some up. Just look for a black car. No, this black car will be rather difficult to miss. And by the way, the gentleman is usually in quite a rush. Just for the taste of it, diet coke. <laughs> Uh, will there be a Looney Tunes uh, WB store ad as well? If we're lucky, but we don't. We want them to stay on. We Fair. don't want them to think they're actually seeing the movie. Uh, so, Scott, <laughs> I, am I? I have to say that, and this might be the single most important movie I and probably you have ever seen in our lifetimes. This one, yes, defines us. Like this is the turning point. I wasn't alive in '77 to see Star Wars. This was that experience for a lot of people back yes. then. Um, this, I mean, it, it was my favorite film, period, growing up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was aware it had its issues. And, you know, it's, it's, this was back when it was fun to watch movies that you enjoyed and laugh at some of that silly stuff. Like when you're a kid, you're going, you know, I assume everybody here has seen Batman. You know, I, I always thought it was funny that when the Joker throws his parade and starts throwing out money, he's like, why aren't the police coming to arrest this? No right, mass murderer. Why are they waiting till Batman shows up? But anyway, that's fun to nitpick. It doesn't, you mm-hmm. know, it's not the cornerstone of fucking film criticism that it's sort it's, of become. It's big theater, like that's yeah. what we're watching here. Um, but yeah, and Batman was one of the biggest movies I had ever seen at that point in time. It's larger and than life. And looking back I now, was, I'm like, it is larger than life. Like some of it yeah. is not. I don't know. It's big, but it's not like, I don't know. I captured the imagination of me at eight years well, old. Well, it, it, it's very, you know, Wagnerian, very expressionistic and dark mm-hmm. deco. In a way, because it's so surreal, it feels bigger in some ways mm-hmm. than a film like, for example, The Dark Knight, which is a huge, spectacular action adventure picture, mm-hmm. but it's also basically set in Chicago. Yeah. So there is a certain, and again, that's part of why the film works. I mean, it's basically what if Batman and Joker reenacted a Sidney Lumet crime drama, right? With a bit of heat, heat thrown in for good measure, but that's mm-hmm. another conversation, right? Um, yeah, that's what I love about the Dark Knight. That you know, like they spent like a decade trying to rip it off and couldn't figure out that no, 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 this movie is actually very small. It's about city politics, people. yeah, <laughs> right. And so, so this movie's got we, you and I, as I, I mentioned, we have talked about this film a lot. It's a film that, uh, um. 
our shared experience and enjoyment of it was like a part of a launching pad of our friendship. Yes. In talking this movie. Um, we've been on like Out Now with Aaron and Abe commentaries talking about it. Uh, favorite films episode. Scott, you were on the 25th anniversary Blu-ray release for a featurette talking about Batman. Even Sadly, all of my good stuff got cut. But yes, I'm very briefly on there for a few segments. Um, and yeah, that was sort of a, an early professional highlight. That was in uh, late uh, the summer of 2014 that was recorded. And because um, I had just written a... 25th anniversary piece and in terms of big picture my feelings on batman is that it is the movie that you know people like to say that oh you know jaws and star wars ruined hollywood because it turned the b movie into the a movie and people were chasing blockbusters or whatever it's like i no, i i and again i love batman but to me batman is a movie that ruined hollywood because it showed the industry that if you took something that wasn't a movie and you could turn it into a movie, which, of course, sent everyone going into the you know, IP treasure trove for books, mm-hmm. plays, comic books, video games, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the other thing is that, you know, it's 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 it opens so big based almost entirely on pre-release hype and anticipation. Much of it was manufactured via merchandising and just general free media attention. It was weird. I was nine years old at the time. And even I was consciously aware that like, I'm not a huge Batman fan, but I am dying to see this movie. Huh? Um, I, I had, I'd watched the Adam West stuff for, for a bit when I was growing. And that was my Batman connection. But my mother was the one who was stoked about because she grew up in the 60s and they, they had to run home to watch Batman every night. It was Batman and Dark Shadows were like that. So she was into bats, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but um, that was that was the thing. My mom was super hyped about it um, going to it. And the film demolished the opening weekend record at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, weirdly enough, the opening weekend record, and this is one reason why the summer of 89 was sort of a groundbreaking summer. It was sort of the first modern summer in terms of franchises and tent poles and all that jazz. Mm-hmm. The opening weekend record was broken three times in about a month. Uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade opened with around $27 million, $29 million-ish over its $37 million Memorial Day weekend. Okay. Go in mid June, Ghostbusters a week before Batman. Ghostbusters two opens with twenty nine and a half million dollars, breaking the opening weekend record. And then one weekend later, Batman makes forty three million dollars in a single weekend, counting previews. And nobody had ever seen a film that made so much money so quickly. Yeah, it's insane because I, I go to think about it, I'm like, what, what, like, I mean, great. I mean, tra- they had to rush the trailer out for people to see that they were what they were doing with this. Yes. Um, because even back then, toxic fandom existed and all sorts. Oh of yeah, stuff. it but, was. Uh, but it's in the, like the merch. But like, you'd have thought this had been more word of mouth <laughs> than opening huge. Uh, and yeah, there was word of mouth on it too. But and the word of mouth was solid. The reviews mm-hmm. were mixed positive. Um, you know, I'm not going to pretend that everybody loved it. I'm not going to pretend that, it, you know, again, it didn't have the legs of something like E.T. or Beverly Hills Cop or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember at the time, after the opening, it's like, oh, my God, this is going to beat E.T. And in the end, it didn't come anywhere close. You know, it did 251 domestic, which, to be fair, was the biggest grossing movie since Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, but even worldwide, it made $411 million, which was less that summer than Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which made four seventy five. which is generally speaking, the Batman films have never been huge overseas. So Batman was Iron Man and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade was Mamma Mia. <laughs> yes. Um, or Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, and but you know its success. You know what I always say about you know after you know the the, the eighties, you know Star Wars Jaws comes out. You know oh boy the new blockbuster. But you know Ghostbusters was an original movie. Beverly Hills Cop was an original movie. Raiders of the Lost Ark was an original movie. You know the uh, 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 Back to the Future was an original picture. Um, well, it also opens in the summer like Karate Kid was having a sequel, and that was a original yes. thing that was yes. lethal, lethal had- weapons like. Yeah. yeah, but what Batman did is it had an unthinkably huge opening weekend, unthinkably huge success, mostly predicated on the idea of what if we took this thing that wasn't a movie and put big stars into it and made it an event movie, and we basically pre-sold it to something you have to see to be part of the discourse. And that's not a super original idea, but I mean, I would argue the first Batman had more pre-release hype than any movie since, I don't know, Gone with the Wind in terms of for a non-sequel. <laughs> yeah. You know, obviously we're not talking about the Empire Strikes Back here. Um, what was the only thing going on that was based on something like the Star Trek movies in terms of big blockbusters yeah. that were based off a of pre-already, but that was, yeah, a con- and that was a continuation of not a start. And while the, the first two Star Trek films broke the opening weekend records respectively, they were not anywhere near the biggest grossing movies. You know, they didn't come, let me put it this way. They didn't make anywhere near what Star Wars did, little or right. Back to the Future, Belly Old Cop, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's the story of Star Trek at the movies. Never pretty made, much. Ne- never made near is what Star Wars did. Well, no. And I remember when they were first talking about doing a new Star Trek movie with $150 million budget, it's like, what the hell are you thinking? This, these are franchises never made more than $109 million. The biggest opening for a Star Trek movie was Star Trek First Contact, which made $30 million. And the most popular one, the most popular one is like a submarine drama. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, Star Trek First Contact is $30 million. Best case scenario, you know, great reviews, strong buzz, blah, blah, blah. Six months later, a re-release of Star Wars does $37 million. Yeah. Um, but back to Batman, I mean, it was, it really did feel like, unlike any conventional action adventure fantasy of that period, you know, it's, it's for better or worse. I mean, the, the Danny Elfman score was very old school, you know, obviously you could, everyone listening to this could probably comment. And that, well, it goes with the opening credit sequence, which is a traveling through yes. the bat logo, which is, oh, it's up it's, there with like a bond sequence. of one Yeah, of the it's biggest. very aware of its own iconography, mm-hmm. which is interesting. And they know, the sold whole. the posters, just the bat symbol. Yeah, that's all you need. It. And that thing was ever, I had Converse shoes with that on it. People just had that on their shirt. They didn't have like Batman. It was just that symbol to sell it. And, you know, again, the lesson that Hollywood would learn is that you could do that. You could make a movie that was so pre-sold that it almost didn't matter if the movie was any good or not. Well, I mean, they do the thing, like, they have a controversial pick for for Batman, which is like, it's either people, it gets people talking to where it becomes news, and then you have people that just don't care. They're going to see Batman, and people are like, Michael Keaton is Bat. Well, I should... This could be a mess. Got to see this or something like that, you know. And then you have Nicholson. If Nicholson's in it, well, hmm, maybe I should 
is this taking it seriously or what? What are we doing here? Like if he's he's gonna jump on board. And the rest of the cast, well, you know, they it's a pretty solid cast. Oh, it's Even really if good I was cast, too yeah. young enough to know who Jack is it Balance or Balance? I never I've heard I always called them Palance growing up, but I've I'm watching DVDs and stuff. Uh and bonus features, they all say Palance. They've been doing it wrong for forty two years. You uh, have been doing it. <laughs> wrong. Um but no, it's it's a solid, solid cast of just solid, esteemed, interesting actors. Mm-hmm. Um Well, I mean you got Porkins from Star Wars in here. Look at that guy. God, yeah. He's in as, Star Wars. He, as and not ba- Harvey Bullock. Not Har- yeah, not Harvey Bullock. Michael Goff, so Tim Burton brings his little hammer love in there. Uh and um, you know, Billy D. Williams in here is Harvey Dent. A black Harvey Dent, and guess what? <gasps> nobody gave a shit. Not I, I, and my my nobody gave a shit is it was okay. Yeah, it, it was, was okay. Fine. Like you know, it's it's I you know I, I don't want to, but I don't know if Burton had stuck around whether we would have gotten Billy D. Williams just reprising and turning into Two Face, or whether the yeah. notion of having a black Two Face was always something that certain studio executives were not thrilled about. Yeah. I don't want to spread conjecture over you know 25, 30 year old discourse. My only problem with but, Billy Dean Williams is Two Face is like he would like the mustache was going to make it a little weird. <laughs> That's fair. That um, uh, but yeah, no, he. It's it's crazy to see the after you know that we talked early on about that quote about being people calling him racist i'm like look at what he was doing in the night like he's like that's not tim burton i think you know he said something stupid just it's his actions look differently than what he said you know and here we go again just just nonchalantly like he was just doing it because that was the best guy for the role doing all this and so you can tell he is a best person for the role type person i don't think he was like ha 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 you know um oh yeah i mean it's 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 whatever i mean it's it's um and he brings keaton over from beetlejuice who he'd worked with and um you know is in you gotta like he was raked over for that but like you know his explanation for it is like well you know i can't have a muscular dude that's not gonna work right you need an ordinary bruce wayne to become an extraordinary batman and a guy that looks a little peculiar that you could believe would do something like and this. what's interesting about the Burton films is that even today, you know, 30 some years later, there's some of the f- few comic book superhero films that argue that no, 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 doing that is fucking weird, man. Mm-hmm. That's not how normal people behave, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, and then he, he makes a point to. To the, the, have the point uh, where, you know, when him and Vicky Vale sleep together and she wakes up in the middle of the night and he's swinging upside down like a bat because you're like, oh, man, this guy's kind of like method about this. And he goes more into it in the next one. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's, but- it's even the Nolan films, which I, you know, I, I, I like. I adore the first two. I, I Dark Knight Rises aged well, but whatever. I mean, I never felt that Christian Bale's Bruce Wayne was particularly crazy. Mm-mm. If anything, he was almost just almost obsessively methodical in a certain way that, again, it's very compelling. It's very interesting. But in terms of Bruce Wayne's that were like, you know, this guy's crazy. And that's, I think, the, the key difference. He wants yeah, to get yeah exactly. Um, Affleck to a certain extent, but that's sort of just he's been doing it for so long that he's burning out. Yeah. And that's that's fine. That's fair for that film. Um but again, I, I think one of the weird things about the superhero movies of the last decade or so, not just Marvel, is that they sort of treat, and especially the TV shows, Jesus, 
mm-hmm. um, is that they treat being a vigil costume vigilante as like a job or like right. an idol to aspire to when you've you know passed your driver's test and now you're a hero. Yeah. Well, um, and the the thing that Marvel dumped out right away, which I think helped them along. Uh, and get away from a lot of contrivances with with superhero stuff is they threw away the the secret identity thing yes. being important, um, which is part of the fun of Batman. Is is yeah. who's, I mean, it's, who's it's, Bruce going to tell? Is he going to get caught? Who's going to find? And that's the fun of that. That's the kind of the fun of the Spider Man. For at least for me, um, is the the secret identity of the the superhero because um, yeah, like and you know I I. And I I've talked about this many times. And Iron Man like 3, I that, know who you are. I'm going to bomb your house. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, the first Batman, it's basically him figuring out how to be Batman. And mm-hmm. the second film, it's him doing well by Batman, but completely fumbling the ball as Bruce Wayne. Exactly. Yeah. And the third film, even though it's a completely different creative team, it kind of... You know, there's the a weird of, you know, arc with the four yeah, movies. It's, it's you know, the Batman Returns is an unhappy ending. Catwoman is dead for all intents and purposes, and he's sort of like in between films. He's because he's sort of like, okay, I need to start being Bruce Wayne again. I need to mm-hmm. be an active participant of the city, and he's doing pretty well doing both until you know Dick Grayson's parents die, and he's sort of like, okay, am I, is Batman the one that I need to give up now? Mm-hmm. And by part four, he's perfectly happy and healthy. He doesn't blame himself for his parents' death anymore because he realized it really wasn't his fault. And the dilemma there is that, you know, I am now a surrogate father to these these orphans, more or less. Mm-hmm. And while my own surrogate father is dying, it's like, I, I, how do I do that? Yeah. And I've always felt that Batman and Robin is is it's a good story that isn't told terribly well. Especially from the, the oh, yeah. hero's point of view. I mean, the, right. the villains are camp nonsense, whatever. Um, but I think the idea of this traumatized orphan having come to terms with being an orphan now has to figure out how to be a surrogate father, you know, the head of a household by himself. Mm-hmm. And while his own surrogate father is theoretically about to die. Right. Um, but anyway. Yeah. Um, so, so let's let's go. What's. Let's talk about since this is a Tim Burton one. What does what what do we have see that Burton brings to Batman? The and, production design. Anton first won an Oscar for this film. Yeah. Before unfortunately he took his own life between that and Batman Returns. Right. Um, excuse me, died by suicide. I think that's the appropriate term now. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, and obviously Danny Elfman's you know thunderous Wagnerian score that, right? that inspired a million ripoffs, justifiably. Here's an underappreciated aspect. I think Prince. There's a Prince sound throughout this movie. There's pop Prince songs that he wrote for this movie that appear and kind of give it a, a pop, a vibe, a time capsule-ish thing or a, a standalone thing that Batman Returns doesn't have Prince. Batman Forever doesn't have Prince. Nothing has that. And and it's such a specific music that adds a little lightness to this movie, um, even though it's not... We used to call this the dark and gritty Batman before Nolan took over that we needed to return to. And you go back, you couldn't be more wrong about that. It's just, it's stylized gothically, but there's a lot of color added to the jo- with the Joker. There's goofiness. There's good humor in this movie. The characters aren't uptight and just all the time. And it, it's 
it's it's yeah. a lot more and, com- it's a lot more comic booky than than was remembered until. And I would say the same thing about the Nolan pictures. It's and like, yes, you know, yes. when a new one comes out, they're like, "Oh, this is the darkest, grittiest Batman ever." And then mm-hmm. the next version comes out, "No, no, this is the darkest, grittiest Batman ever." And this new darkest, um, grittiest Batman is pretty funny at times too. I think yeah, that even I, the Matt Reeves one. The you Matt know, Reeves my, one. I have yeah. my I have my issues with the film, but it's not humorless. Um, even the the Snyder films, they have a very macabre mm-hmm. sense of humor. Yeah, I think the 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 grandma's peach tea payoff or peach tea payoff is hysterical. Yeah. Um. But anyway. But um, uh, Burton, uh, the um, Joker being the murderer yeah. of Batman's parents. I like that. I was, yeah. For, I was, I've never in a had a non-franchise world that makes sense when you're okay. Well, this is going to be one movie. Yeah. They the had no idea. Movie. Yeah. He avenges his parents' death. And he, he closes the book on that. And if there's never another Batman movie, well, okay, there you go. There's yeah. no loose ends. No. Yeah, it's it's it helps it stand alone, be its own thing, and, and it's a complete arc, and and it it's great in that way. We're not like, well, next time. And I think, and I like that. You know, Nolan's first one is a complete story itself, and it just has a little tag at the end that doesn't. Yeah. It's just like, oh, we know where this goes, kind of tag. Like, yeah. you know, we know what Batman and the Joker is. And that, is, that is a film that if there wasn't a sequel, it would have been fine. You'd have just been like, oh, I can pop up, pop on Burton's Batman, and I'll watch Batman and the Joker. It's <laughs> and the it's, it's the same way with The Dark Knight, in which I think a lot of people, maybe recently, have mistaken. You know, not everything is a cliffhanger. Sometimes it's right. just a new status quo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's um, an yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. The status quo where Batman needs to be untrusted again to save the city. Yeah. And and it's so funny. There's a lot of stuff that because we were used to pre... And I hate to be talking about the Dark Knight during Batman, but um, preconceived notions of how things should be that we didn't get right away or understand. Because like, well, they're just using two faces like an end thing. It's like, no... It's actually better than any fucking full Two Face movie could have been with what they're doing and how he's. It's brilliant how they utilize Two Face in that aged the dark very night. well. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, that took me by surprise too. I'll admit. It's like, oh, that's um, it. We're just gonna have this with Two Face, and it's like, no, it actually, and it helps to give some credence to the next movie. It it lends a, a spot for that to open yeah. up, which wasn't planned. Where yeah. they were gonna go, and they just went out and made the best damn movie they could. There's an opening for more if you want. If not, you know how Batman is. Like, and- <laughs> I, I will say for this picture, when it was coming out, it was controversial in the idea that you had this film about Batman, a comic book superhero movie, star of comics and cartoons, that was not only PG-13, but was really violent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That and- was, I think I was cool in my class. I was in, oh, yeah. it was after I finished first grade, so it was between first and second grade. And I was one of the few kids that got to see Batman. And be like, your parents let you see that? PG-13 was a lot more... People were a lot more conservative about it back then. the PG-13 rating. That's another one of its long-term effects. Nobody had a problem with Indiana Jones that summer or Ghostbusters 2. It was... That was PG. Oh, that was PG. Okay. Yes. That's scary Um, as fuck, too. Uh, (laughs) Back then, you had to earn your PG-13. Right. So, and obviously, you know, Last Crusade is a lot less violent than Temple of Doom. It's just, it's because of Temple of Doom we have the fucking PG thirteen. Right. So, so yeah, so um, it, was a, it was a big deal. The PG thirteen and Jack Nicholson, when as a seven year old, he was scary. Oh yeah, he killed like a hundred people. Yeah, he was. Um, and that guy, he burned and. And it's, it's, it was unusual in a film at that point to see a that kind of cartoonist supervillain that just 
killed people for shits and giggles. Yeah. I mean, even like you know, a slasher movie villain at a certain, you know, you know, even like Freddy Krueger would kill maybe two or you know, four or five people in a movie at mm-hmm. best. Or, you know, but 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 the performance of Jack Nicholson and the Joker, along with Alan Rickman and Die Hard, sort of reinvented the cinematic villain for a good decade or so. Oh, yeah. Where yeah, you sure. saw a bunch of action films, fantasy films, where like the scene stealing villain was more important and would overshadow the hero intentionally. You know, for better or worse, um, the point where you know by 1994, I would argue Raul Julia in Street Fighter is basically making fun of that. Right. I mean, I'm not going to say Street Fighter is some glorious masterpiece, but I do think that performance is a very knowing satire of the post diehard Batman villains. Sure. Um, sure. But and you know, because he want to go, he goes with a smile. Um, Love that Joker. But and so, as so far stuff- as the film's tone, yeah. it's basically really macabre and very violent camp. Yeah, yeah, and it it ages very well. There, there's stuff like as you grow up that you don't appreciate as much or realize. Like I didn't get for the longest time the makeup thing, and then I love the newscasters continuing to look like shit with their yeah. hair and they're because they can't use makeup in town, and that's hilarious uh, what they're doing. So there, there. there is a specificity to the film that has made it age very well because again, yes, they were hoping to make a sequel because they're, you know, it's Batman, but it it was allowed to be its own thing. It was sort of, you know, 50% studio, 50% Burton. Right. And Burton did struggle on the film. It was Mm -hmm. overwhelming. Ironically or fittingly, you know, Jack Nicholson was a guy that sort of stood up for him when the chips were down Yeah, and would often be his ally. Um, and we that's, also that's not to, to say that Keaton wasn't there or anything, but yeah. And this was Nick- some adventurous surefire roll of the dice too. Superman was failing at mm-hmm. Warner Brothers, so it was like, uh, okay. No, they they tried to you know there was a Tom Mankiewicz written Batman script in the early '80s that was basically based on the late '70s Engelhart runs. It would have uh, oh, yeah. Joker and Penguin would be in it as well as Robin, but the prime villain would be Rupert Thorne. Right, and th- this project starts like after Superman does well. It took them that long yeah. to get this Batman movie made, and there's a lot of people, a lot of hands change on the way to get to here. Like, it's- and one way in this which this film stands out is that it's one of the few mega franchise comic book superhero movies that, at least for the first installment, that isn't trying to you know follow the template of Richard Donner's Superman. All right, yep, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's no origin story. You're plunged right into the thick of it. That's the beauty of it. And, you know, if anything, it's an origin story for the villain. Yeah. Um, um, and I, I've told this before, but I always see this movie as also an interesting thing. Like, it's it's through the eyes of Vicki Vale that we get this. Yeah. And that's what helps. Yeah, she's it. basically our surrogate. Her and uh, Alexander Nock, to a certain mm-hmm. extent. Yeah. And so we get through her, and we don't have to... We I love the fake opening where you think it's the Batman origin story, yeah. and it's not. And then, you know, we can pick up the pieces after. Now you gotta get, we need to start at the beginning. We need to watch Uncle Ben die. <laughs> I was either to- too smart or too dumb to figure that out when I first saw it. It didn't even occur to me that that was, you know, a f- origin story fake out. Well, and I saw um, that. Well, I saw that and I was like, when I first saw it in the theater, I was like, did that kid just like morph into Batman or something now? Like, what? That's, that's weird. And I was like, oh, wait. Okay. It's not. It's. Some other family um, that happened to have. No, it, it is a thing. terrific fake out in retrospect. It is, yeah. Um, 
And, you know, yeah, there are things about the movie that are not quote unquote faithful to the comic, but there's a lot of stuff that is, you oh, know, yeah. the whole bleeding flowers on crime alley every year, the, the way the Joker kills people with Smilax is basically Joker venom. Yeah. Which is something he's been doing that since his first appearance in 1940. Um, and the film's tone and arch sensibility, as well as the fact that the first third basically plays like a 1940s gangster movie or 1930s gangster movie basically makes it feel a pretty spot on adaptation. The first two or three years, of the comic books, mm -hmm. when the architecture was crazy, uh, Batman worked alone. He was a murderer. He did kill people and the villains would kill dozens, hundreds of people in a single issue because the comic book gives a shit. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's got such a specific style that is hearkening to things, but not, you wouldn't say it's of this time. And it just mixes and mashes them to be its own thing. It works so well. It's just like, I'll give credit to the, the Rob Zombie's remake of Halloween. Looks a lot of 70s, but is it really, it's not really 70s, but it's yeah. so specific. You could watch it at any time and just be fine because you don't, you don't specifically know what time period it is. So any technological things that show up or don't show up, you're. you're what I, you I find understand. amusing, and if you're a longtime listener, I apologize. You can probably recite this speech by heart but because you know batman was such a 1930s gangster pulp type adventure and the films that came after that tried to capitalize on success were 1930s 1940s adventure movies like dick tracy and the shadow and uh the phantom, phantom and the Rocketeer. Yeah. um and they were generally not successful dick tracy made money but it was expected to be much bigger mm -hmm. um but meanwhile a year later New Line Cinema spends in whoever, you know, Golden Harvest spends $13 million on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and makes $200 million. Mm -hmm. And that film, more than Batman, I would say, set the tone and set the stage for the modern comic book superhero film. It was a right. present tense, uh, a present tense movie based on characters that were popular or known to today's kids. Mm hmm. And it was early enough in the property's lifespan that people can act, oh, wow, we're getting a Ninja Turtles movie. Neat. We're getting a Spawn movie. That's cool. I read that book last year. Yeah. Um, and as opposed to like, well, kids love Batman, so they'll love the Rocketeer? Right. No? No? no. And one of the only knockoffs of that that actually worked was Kevin Costner's Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, because that looked like, for one thing, it was a you know a spectacular, huge budget action adventure movie. Another PG thirteen film that was ridiculously violent back right. then. Um, and you had a, a movie star, Kevin Costner. You know, all due respect, especially to kids of the nineteen nineties. Warren Beatty was not a movie star. Billy Zane's not a movie star, etc. You know, Alec Baldwin was not really a movie star for kids. Yeah. Um, and there's this this weird disconnect for a good 10 years between Batman and I guess X-Men or Blade I guess if you want to yeah Blade, yeah, let's Blade, go Blade. Yeah, let's go Blade where you have these you know would be next Batman films that are really missing why people showed up to Batman and you know just because they showed up to Beauty and the Beast doesn't mean they're going to see Dumbo yeah and uh, yeah Warrior Brothers would they, would did they do Steel or did someone else did they shop they that didn't out do Steel because that was DC and that was like the modern thing that they did um um, and they were in the meantime trying to get Superman back off the ground. Mm -hmm. um, with Burton, the Burton one got close. Yeah. Um, and there was going to be a you know basically a long form adaptation of the Death and Return of Superman. Nicholas Cage was going to be Superman. I mm -hmm. think. 
Oh, who was Lex Luthor? Shoot. I used to know this. Okay, whatever. Uh, it was somebody that was somewhat known at that time. Uh, I don't think it was Kevin Spacey yet. No, it wouldn't have no. been Kevin Spacey. No, maybe it, maybe it was. I think we had, this, was... we had this thing where when Superman Returns came out, it was like, well, there was a time where Superman needed Kevin Spacey, and we got Kevin yeah. Spacey when super, when he needed Superman. Absolutely. That's absolutely the case. By the time it actually happened, it was like a, a golden parachute. Um, which is one re- one reason among many of that film wasn't super successful. Um, but I, I remember Superman Death of whatever the hell it was called was so close to the finish line that when it got canceled, they basically made Lethal Weapon Four in record times. So it could have a big tentpole for summer ninety eight. Right, right. Um, but but yeah, as far as I mean. <sighs> trying to think of new things to say about batman we've been talking about it for 30 years yeah Yeah, i know i I, well my thing is like i'm i'm watching this movie and i don't i don't want to make a a blanket blanket statement here but like this adaptation and we'll get into we're going to get into the other one in a little bit here too so we'll be right back to batman don't worry folks um same bad time same bad channel exactly uh same podcast episode bat (laughs) bat pod Bat pod episode, but that would be about the Dark Knight. Um, <laughs> this adaptation with a vision, liberties taken, uh, uh, with a voice and personality to it, like we rarely get that, and we might get some stylistic touches on some of these, but we don't get Batman like ever. We uh, get, like, we there are some Nolans, we get those, but something so strong that they will just I don't know. Sometimes we get Iron Man three, you know, but it's, it's yeah. Just crazy. I think Marvel at their best tries to do that. You know, I, I think one reason I like Shang Chi as much as I do is it feels very much like a a, a Destin Daniel Cretton picture in terms of its themes and its character work. Yeah, um, you know, it feels like a movie from the guy that made the Glass House in Short Term Twelve. Um, but again, those are like you know, those are dramas. They are not yeah. you know, spectacular action adventure movies. Um, but I do think you know Ryan Googler's Black Panther. That's very much a film by the guy that made Creed and Fruitfield Station. Yeah. Um, well, and I, that's, I, the, the Guardians movies very much. Yeah. they are. But are they as um, strong and distinctive voices as Tim Burton's? And let, no, and again, the like reason for that is is the Marvel movies have to fit into a certain ongoing narrative, and they have right. to all take place in the same world. Yeah, and that's always going to put you in a in a different situation, where you know, as opposed to something like you know, where where you know, Batman and Dick Tracy can look and feel nothing alike. Yeah. That's um, why although always, they have some similarities, I, same I li- composer for one thing. <laughs> I like I, I like the crossing over and mixture of the superheroes is neat and stuff. But I've always felt like I just need the one. Like I never read the team up issues in comics. I was always like ah, the big events and stuff. I just like to stick to my Batman, stick to my Spider Man, stick to my X Men. The X Men don't need the Marvel. The X Men is a Marvel universe on its own. That's the craziest thing. I'm like, you realize how yeah. much you add to it when you add X Men. Um, and I'm just like, I'm, I'm content with that. And when you have it movie wise, you don't have to worry about like, what's Superman doing here? What's this guy, you know, and you can just make your superhero movie and not worry about ripple effects. But yeah, though there are, like I said, there are some with stylistic touches. Some of their voice comes through, but I feel like nothing as just blunt 
as some of these other ones. Well, not to skip ahead, but I think part of the reason for that is the sheer backlash three years later over Batman Returns, Mm -hmm. which was Burton going full Burton. Yes. Uh, But also, uh, three years before that, Scott, how was the box office on Batman? As if we've never talked about this (laughs) ever. (laughs) How do I keep this under an hour? Um, 43 million opening weekend, 30 million uh, second weekend gross. It cracked $100 million domestic in 10 days, which was a record. It went. It finished out with five $251 million domestic, which was the fifth biggest movie of all time. It earned $411 million worldwide on a budget of over under $45 million. Depends on who you ask. I mean, I've seen people say the film cost $35. i have seen people say it cost $55. According to Hollywood accounting, it still lost money, so whatever. It, to- it, it was uh, also... <laughs> Funny thing, funny thing here. I'm, I noticed it too. You know those dickheads, Disney. Open, honey, I shrunk the kids against Batman. We're well, gonna was, take you down, Tim. Well, We're no, gonna take was, you down. I think it was a matter of that was counter program. Oh no, one hundred percent. But I yeah. find it funny that here's Disney again. Oh, yeah, and you know, it's torturing it's, Tim Burton. There was a lot of, including me, chatter in this past March about the Batman being basically the only big movie of the entire month of March. And there were some reasons for that. You know, Operation Fortune got pulled. Uh, Turning Red got sent to Disney+, Plus, et cetera, et cetera. But part of the problem is the kind of films that used to open against or alongside Batman movies, mm-hmm. like My Best Friend's Wedding, Mamma Mia, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Maid of um, Honor. Maid of Honor, yeah. It's uh, Iron I don't Man. know. What, I, know that, I don't remember what that opened against, but it wasn't Batman. Iron Man. But- Iron Man, okay. I think, yeah. Or was it uh, Spider-Man 3? Ooh, I w- either answer will work for me. We'll find you, out later. Your, your point is valid. <laughs> and those films barely get made at theatrical level anymore. So, you know, when you don't have a My Best Friend's Wedding, you, there's nothing to open against Batman and Robin. Right. And But in 1989, on the same weekend that Batman was shattering box office records, to an unprecedented degree, Honey, I Shook the Kids open with $14 million. Right, and, and so did Maid of Honor in 2008 against <laughs> Iron Man. Uh, was I, yep. What? <laughs> um, but, so yeah, it, it would be the biggest, you know, again, domestically, it was the biggest grossing movie since Return of the Jedi. Uh, at the time, it was behind Jaws, Return of the Jedi, Star Wars, E.T. Yeah, that was easy. There you go. Um, they made more than The Empire Strikes Back domestically and worldwide. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it, it was just a freaking sensation. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to explain to people what Batmania was like back then, both in terms of how pervasive it was and how unprecedented it was for that kind of promotion and or hype. And funny enough, like now you think, and this was huge like because you got action figures but there were only like three there was yeah that was like the one spot where they dropped the ball was the fucking toys batman joker and bob yeah bob the goon gets into his action figure bob the goon i think there were two variations of batman i had the one where the belt went like i have that one i think i have that one in my in my kid's playroom somewhere i've got that somewhere um and then i think they had a batmobile yeah they did they had a batmobile they had a batman the coolest Batmobile of all time, suck it, is in this movie. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This car is awesome. And the second one, if you want to know what my runner-up is, is the 60s car. <laughs> Take that, Fair haters. Enough. Take that, haters. I like some style. Uh, um, Pat- Pattinson's got a nice ride. I yeah, never was big on the tumbler. No, like, it's just, a, just a giant fucking tank. Yep. I get it. I mean, it's not supposed to be necessarily stylish and cool. It's supposed to be, you know, useful. 
Right. Um, I don't mind the Schumacher Batmobiles. They're just really wobbly and unwieldy. Right. Um, but so, uh, but so when, yeah. when you play that driving Batman game, which one do you pick at the arcade? Oh, geez. Uh, <laughs> I'm always I'm always partial to the Burtman. Fair enough. That's my that's my car. I thought it was so cool. Like I wanted it so bad. Um, and like the shields, shields, and <laughs> and this, yeah, Batman. I will mention one of my greatest favorite sequences of all time in film is the art museum sequence. It's such a beautifully oh put together scene and sequence in a movie. It is a story within itself, and I love yes. it. I love and I love in the the foot chase that follows that, or the car chase. The that's the only time I've ever seen a car chase stop because they were pedestrians, right? And, and they literally have to get out of the car and run because they can't drive anywhere. And this is where you've always put it out to me, and you've always said, Batman doesn't look cool running. No, ever. he always looks like an idiot running. Always. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, whatever. There's nothing this movie's no that. exception. No, he this looks movie. like a moron running. Yeah. And as much as I love the idea of how the Schumacher films end with, you know, the, you know, the Elliot Goldenthal's, you know, And if you watch music, the ears wobble. Yeah, him. I was like, but he's still running, and running is dumb. He, the best Batman's ever looked running <laughs> is the opening sequence of the 60s show. That's about it. The cartoon part. Oh yeah, yeah, that works. That the works. cartoon part. That's about it. Um, I mean, even the you know the 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 Tim Radimski animated series, which I adore, he still looks dumb running there. Yeah. So if you if you want more on Batman, just look up Scott's name, my name, <laughs> and podcast. Or we write articles. about it a lot. We probably repeated stuff, and we have talked this movie up and down and all around, detailed and not. Um, it's one of my favorite, it, it, top five of all time for me easily. Uh, it's probably, you know, I talk about Halloween, but Batman 89 is just as important. I'm sitting here now talking to Scott because of this movie. Pretty much. So, I mean, like I, it opened it's... up my world to just, and I, the summer 89 became the, the summer I saw more movies I ever had in my life at the time. And it was because of movies like this. I just wanted to go to movies. I wanted to capture that feel. I had seen Ghostbusters 2 and Indiana Jones before this, but this one just did something and I wanted to go see more and everything else. And And it was something that, and again, Batman didn't invent this, but the idea of having prestigious acclaimed movie stars playing recognizable marquee characters in a circumstance like this, mm-hmm. that was also a huge, you know, whether it was John Goodman as Fred Flintstone, yep, or Harrison Ford as Richard Kimball, or mm-hmm. Bob Hoskins as Mario. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, it was a on paper that was a fucking great casting call, right? Right? No, yeah, one hundred percent. And that is, you know, that's something that I mean, that's that's something we've almost lost with the super saturation of genre in temples is now everyone does those because there's nowhere left to go. Yeah. You know, if you want three hots and a cot, you know, you basically have to join a franchise. Yeah. 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 That's true. Um, All right. Uh, So now we'll move on to uh, Tim Burton. One for me in the biggest of ways with Edward Scissorhands. This Christmas from the director of Beetlejuice. I just stare, dear. Can I bring show and tell on Monday? Laugh with Edward. Whoa, that's a handshake you got there, Ed. <laughs> Come on, let's get you sharpened up. Edward, um, would you? I'll be done. Edward Scissorhands. We don't want him rusting up on us now, do we? Rated PG-13. Now playing. Which is written by Burton and Caroline Thompson, starring... Johnny Depp, Winona Ryder, Diane Weiss, 
Anthony Michael Hall, Alan Arkin, Kathy Baker, and Vincent Price in his final big screen role. An artificial man who was incompletely constructed and has scissors for hands leads a solitary life. Then one day, a suburban lady meets him and introduces him to her world. Uh, Edward Edward Scissorhands was just like at the time. I don't think we we can we talk about how you know it's hard to describe what the phenomenon of Batman was like. It might be hard to describe how weird Edward Scissorhands was to like be selling to the audiences of that. Like uh, you just had to trust Tim Burton's name on it. And it was a hit. It made about 55 domestic and pretty boy, Johnny Depp doing something like this was crazy. And Burton said he wrote the role with Depp in mind. Like that's who he wanted, but I'm this time around watching it had things gone differently for him. I could see him putting Paul Rubens as Edward Scissorhands. How old was Paul Rubens back then? He was probably pushing 40. That would have been really awkward. Something. It would have been, but it's a... <laughs> I, yeah, I, I don't know how it would have gone, but like... I mean, it might not be any less awkward than, you know, nearly 40 Johnny Depp snooking with Christina Ricci and Sleepy Hollow, but that's right. a later podcast. We'll, be, we'll get there soon. Um, yes. But I just... There was a lot of like the way Depp was playing things felt like it could be a transcendent role for Paul Rubens where he could do this to get out of Pee Wee to play other things. I don't know. I saw that in this time I was watching it and watching it close with Pee Wee. There was a lot of Rubensisms in, in Depp that I saw here, but Johnny oh. Depp probably wasn't having that in mind, but I kind of like, maybe he saw something in Depp that he saw in Rubens or something. Um, this is one of the most, lovely fabled Frankenstein stories I've, I've seen. Yeah, but it is a Frankenstein movie through and through. Oh, yeah. Even, you know, I was 10 years old. I came out of the theater with my brother thinking that reminded me of Frankenstein. And, you know, I, I had just recently gone on a kick of reading all the classic horror novels, Dracula, gotcha. Frankenstein, etc. Frankenstein, I would say, is probably the best in terms of just readability yes. and sheer quality. Dracula, I imagine anyone that reads Dracula has a sort of an uh-oh moment when they realize, wait a minute, this whole fucking novel is letters. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Let's do anyway. the best adaptation we can. Um, but I, yeah, this movie just—it's a—it's an extension. It is definitely like his next step from Beetlejuice to this, where he opens up and goes in more suburbia. Um, just such a extraordinary vision and i think stan winston teams up with him here um it's it's an it's adorable movie it's it got a lot of stuff and it it was weird <laughs> there's i i hate to bring it up but in the movie johnny depp as edward scissorhands is uh sexually assaulted and abused by a woman who then turns and says i did not nah, he did it to me foreshadowing uh or something to <laughs> later life but i was just like oh oh wow that's that that's that hits differently now um but it's got a lot of good people good role like diane weist is just kind of adorable here i think the silent killer in this movie that i think is great is alan arkin yes yeah. how oddly kind and accepting he is of everything he's so nonchalantly nice yeah and I, and I don't know. I think it's a lot of what Arkin brings to the role. I'm sure it's on paper too. 
because the things he says, but there's something just so right about it being Alan Arkin because he's got like a, he's got, what would you call it, like a Brooklyn type cadence and stuff that wouldn't fit with a guy like this being so kind, but it, it works quite well. Um, and it's, it's just such a vignette movie. Like, yeah, it's very episodic. We'll go here and you do this and then do this and then here's where he goes and does this. Um, yeah. It's, it's very swiftly based, almost too fast. I would say, and again, I like this movie, but it's not one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the heel turn is a little too quick, because partially because I mean, I remember when I, you know, again, I saw this when I was ten years old or whatever. It was like I was surprised at how nice and accommodating all the townspeople were. Yeah, I was expecting more edge right up front, but it's because we saw like, Frank and Weenie where they're like, yeah, yeah. Oh, fuck you. And I think to a certain extent, the film is excessively childlike in its thematics and it's not necessarily a criticism Mm -hmm. but in terms of it feels very much male adolescent fantasy in a way that i found a little off-putting even when i was 10 i knew i was being Mm -hmm. pandered to gotcha um you know not to get all navel gazy here but when people talk about oh you know disney princess movies are bad for girls because it gives unrealistic blah 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 i think the counterpoint is, is movies like this I'm not saying this movie in a vacuum is bad or moral or whatever, but right. I do think there's a certain, you know, freaky nice guy who's slightly nice and somehow when a rider falls in love with him at the drop of the hat. Right. Um, I think he gets away with it because it is a doomed romance. They don't end up together. Yeah, um, part of it. I mean, the movie's only an hour 45, whereas today yeah. it'd be two and a half and that'd probably be explored a bit more, but. Yeah. And it's without saying, you know, I, I that is a movie that I think might have helped for being maybe another extra 15 minutes, give or take. Yeah. Um, because it is so episodic that there's almost it almost lacks connective tissue. Because it really is almost all of the big key moments in the what is it, a seventy-two hours or a week or whatever. Something um, something like that. Yeah, he gets on TV, starts a business. I guess that's true. There's a montage. Uh, um but, but a lot of it is at the beginning is that it's a first act of Diane Weist meeting him, bring him to the house, and it takes a while for Winona Ryder to enter the movie. Yeah, it's about halfway before she shows up. It's a it's a, it's a good four, 35, maybe 40 minutes before Winona Ryder shows up. And yeah. part, part, of the, part of the thing with Winona Ryder is while she's done up to be the blonde da-da-da girl, like, I still, I think part of it in this movie is you still are seeing Beetlejuice, her from Beetlejuice, so you know that that's not who you really are. <laughs> And so you're you kind of feel like that's in her, but um, and that's kind of her presence. Like this doesn't, I like I, I I it doesn't feel like this is her. It feels like someone hiding themselves with Renona Ryder in this movie. Maybe it's the I, blonde uh, hair or something like that. But I, I think part of that is again, it's it's sort of playing with the fantasy of the the hot cheerleader blonde is secretly. A f- not a f- sexually, but you know, a freak inside that will accept you for who you are, gotcha. despite you being weird. Right. And even Burton admitted in one of his one of the books that I read that you know the ending where he viciously murders the school bully in a very triumphant duel to the death atop a castle was very much him blowing off steam from his high school days. Edward dies tonight. Yeah, basically. Edward dies tonight. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, I well, put that together. Well done. So you and I, well, yeah, you, yeah, you, um, you know, we've talked about the end of this movie before because you were uh, never a big fan of it and stuff. And I watch it, and I'm, I, I, I've never really had a problem because it's for me, it's it's just a movie. 
um, yeah. where people can explore ideas like this or take things out. Um, but then I, I watched it this time, you know, I was watching this in mind, but like, dude comes guns blazing upstairs with no choice. Uh, there's like no choice but to like, he's trying to shoot and murder him. And then there's a scene, there's a moment where I can see, and, and it's probably brilliance of a good performance by Anthony Michael Hall that when Winona Ryder starts defending him doing all this, you can see a change in his attitudes. Like I'm going to have to kill her too. Yeah. Like I can see it. And I'm like, okay, they're in a no put in a return. And then she, when Edward is down and she has Anthony Michael Hall with the, the scissor hand to him, she's it's at the witness of Edward. Who's not the brightest. He's innocent and impressionable thinking, Oh, that she's going to she needs said something about killing him and then when he beats her to the ground and he he decides to do it for her yeah um, I, mean, it's, I don't think she intends to kill him but he takes it wrong and i also believe in this story you need a way for him to both be heroic 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 in a way and horrific in a way that he has to stay there for Ever. And it has to be understandable to her, to him, and to the townsfolk. And I think yeah. it's a dark way of doing it, but it pulls it off. With yeah, you. and it's, it's, it was never a deal breaker. I still enjoyed yeah. the movie. It just, it's one of those situations that were like, could they not figure out a way to end this that isn't, you know, a fight to the death mm-hmm. atop a castle where the nice guy has to defend the hot girl from the from the guy that she shouldn't be with, who isn't just kind of a dick. He's a comic book villain now. Right. Um, and again, it's even Burton admits it's not his finest moment and yeah. whatever. Until but, b- before the, the climactic scene, is there anything that Anthony Michael Hall, Kevin, I believe his name is, has done to warrant his death? No. 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 Um, but cinematically, when you come in shooting at somebody with yeah. no... There's no... Uh, let's sit down and talk about this and then be like, man, it got crazy up there, didn't it? Yeah, let's go for a beer, Edward. <laughs> That's not happening in, yeah. in, a, in a movie sense. Um, Back when we could take movies as movies and not reality. And it's, but. and like, you know, I mean, without getting nitpicky and annoying here, like all the townspeople are running to the castle. What were they going to do? They don't even have weapons. Were they just going to like disc at them? Well, and I love when they, she reveals to the end, there's kind of like, oh. Okay, let's go home. All right. And, and, uh, the the neighbor the woman who kind of started the turn on Edward uh, Kathy Baker's character she's got this look on her face like oh all right. like you were part of why <laughs> everyone was for Anthony Michael yeah. Hall coming there um, um and you know it's 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 whatever I'm not as big a fan of the third act as the rest of the picture I still think mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a triumph of production design it's a it's one of Danny Elfman's best scores oh it's great yeah Johnny Depp is spectacular in the film so far, he's only every, got what every like a movie, dozen lines maybe yeah every movie we can hum the scores to so far like, <laughs> so it's, far it's so far it's been less like man these get used for trailers montages mm-hmm. and other things like and it's just great but yeah. Uh, but yeah, oh, Edward doesn't say much. It was a weird thing for Depp at the time. And the funny thing was, this is where we find out. This is, this is who Johnny Depp is and Johnny Depp wants to be. These are the characters he wants to play. And it would take 
a while to get back to this. Well, for him, there was a period before, you know, between 1990 and you know, to maybe 1999, mm-hmm. where he's basically box office poison. Not only is he not a butts and seats draw, but right. he has such a reputation for weird, offbeat, audience displeasing pictures that I think, to a certain extent, he's a repellent. Yeah, now that's you know, that's not to say that his movies aren't good. Don Juan DeMarco is good. Nick of Time rules. Nick of Time is good, and that was sort of his dear God. I need to make a mainstream picture. Yeah, and nobody showed up because we went to Toy Story and Money Train, and uh, what was the other? What's it in Gilbert Grape, which you know put Leonardo oh, yeah. DiCaprio on the map. That is a good film, mm-hmm. and regardless of his off-screen turns of late, he's always been a very good actor. Oh yeah, and I would argue he never really phones it in. No, even stuff like Mordecai, he's making specific choices. I like, I um, like Mordecai. I like Mordecai. Yeah, that was better than Black Mass. <laughs> yeah, I mean that was his you know year end awards bait. Oh wow, he's a real actor again. Like he was more interesting in Mordecai. Yeah, I and the thing is, like I think maybe <laughs> compare it like he wasn't balancing it out like Keanu was able to at the yes. time between interesting and some nice little cash money box office well, mainstream stuff. I think Keanu Reeves, thanks to Speed, was was made into a, a viable action hero. Right. So you could occasionally do, you know, sci-fi action fantasy or straight action films that were, you know, more viable than something mm-hmm. like a walk in the clouds. Great movie, by the way. Yeah. Which you um, can still do those. Like, yeah. but like, well, then, you know, but there's only one Keanu Reeves. I mean, he's basically right. one of the biggest, best action stars of our generation, who is also an entirely convincing romantic leading man. Right. I mean, I can't think of anyone else I can think of, say that about. You know, not Schwarzenegger, not Stallone, not Bruce Willis, et cetera, et cetera. Not Christian um, Slater. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, that's just it's very true. Very true. Um but yeah, uh so yeah, here this is I mean they they hit it off. They because this is their their start um to work together. We'll be talking about Johnny Depp in a, a lot. lot of other films. Uh, I also noticed uh what's her name? Um the 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 bigger woman that's plays one of the neighbors she's from Pee Wee's Playhouse, um oh. so that's another plant here that's there um but it, yeah it's a interesting cast everything's it's fun it's that suburbia meets goth stuff that he likes to do so much it's a it's our second film in a row we're talking about today which uh has someone falling out of a tower to their death in the air of moonlight. Uh, <laughs> Slightly more appropriate in the last film, but that's okay. Um, But, uh, yeah. And it's it's a film that, you know, watching it this time, it reminded me of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Because it's a story of an outcast who is embraced by his peers only after he proves that he is useful. Hmm. Yeah. (laughs) There you go. And, yeah, it's, um, it's a film only Tim Burton could make. Yeah, and I and this is one of his originals, which are few and far between, as you're going yes. to find out. This is we had this in Beetlejuice, so right now it's like, oh, and he's he's adapted Pee Wee, he's adapted Batman, and he's going to adapt Batman in the next film again, and that's where we're at with the the originals. So, um, Scott, uh, how was Edward Scissorhand at the box office in 19? 19- 90. This is where they start uh, releasing his films a little early, a couple hundred screens, and then they go wider later. Yeah, that was unusual for a non-Disney animated release. Mm-hmm. This, and I should have had this page up beforehand. I'm stalling because I say the old box office mojo would have corrected my spelling. 
Yeah, this pulled one of the biggest per screen averages for a live action film ever. Mm-hmm. Because it opened two theaters. Yeah, it was two theaters in early December. So it was pitched as a holiday movie. And I, I guess this is a Christmas movie, which is interesting because mm-hmm. it's one of the few successful Christmas movies that actually opened in December. Because mm-hmm. most of the ones that you think of as timeless Christmas classics were November releases. And you know the reasons for that are obvious. You get the Thanksgiving weekend crowd mm-hmm. and you get the Christmas splits. Right. Um, <laughs> excuse me. I think off the top of my head, the biggest grossing Christmas movie to actually come out in December was uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, which made $72 million in 1989. Hmm. Um, anyway, Edward Hands opens in two theaters, makes $159,622. Uh, That's $79,811 per screen, which is huge for a live action movie. Especially back then. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know what I, I can't do the I can do the just inflation math later or whatever. It expands to a thousand screens over uh December 14th through 16th, which is that pre which is that key pre-Christmas weekend that eventually will be the home of, you know, Titanic, Lord of the Rings, Aquaman, Avatar, etc. Star okay. Wars, you know. Um, it makes six point three million dollars for a solid six thousand dollar average, and it just sticks around for a while. You know, it never opened particularly huge. Its biggest weekend was nine million over New Year's weekend in its third frame, uh, and then it tops out at around fifty-six million dollars, hmm. which is perfectly fine. And you know, it's a twenty million dollar movie, and obviously, it did well on VHS and HBO and all that jazz. And it sort of becomes sort of the prototypical one, you know, when people talk about you know one for them, one for me, one for them, one for me. This is sort of a prototypical, you know one for the, me after you make a movie like Batman. And yeah. unlike a lot of one for me's, this was a hit. Yeah. Obviously the other example is, you know, Christopher Nolan makes Batman Begins, then he makes The Prestige, which was a solid earner, about 120 on a 40 budget. Then he does The Dark Knight and then gets 200, you know, 160 million for Inception, which does $825 million. Right. So, and that's sort of one reason why Nolan is Nolan is that his one for me pictures tend to be huge hits anyway. Yeah. Um, and again, this is a very different time, but, um, and, you know, for example, a one for me that was not a hit as much as I adore it is, you know, uh, Cameron Crowe makes Jerry Maguire that does 155 million domestic three something worldwide. He follows it up with Almost Famous, which is one of the best movies of the 2000s, but it was a, of all time, semi of all time. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm a huge fan of it, but you know it was entirely uncommercial. Um, so it it it, it bombed, and other than you know Vanilla Sky, which also starred Tom, Tom Cruise, mm-hmm. Cameron Crowe really never had another hit. No. Um, but anyway, I'm getting off the subject. Yeah, so. Um. So yeah, it was a it was a there was a you know from from Pee Wee to Ed Wood he was basically King Midas. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. This is this, this is the spot artistically and financially. It's and even Ed well. Wood, which is his first bomb, still got the best reviews of his career, and Martin Landau won an Oscar for it. Right, and we'll so. be getting to that next time on our next episode, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, but our next movie is the Return of Batman. And which is Batman Returns? I'll say it because some guy's gonna be like, "Oh, you called the Return of Batman." <laughs> we know what it's called. Um, is that called Batman Triumphant? Yeah. No. Nope. 
my dear penguins! Launches his foul attack. A cunning cat. Meow. Lashes out. To destroy Batman, we must first turn him into what he hates the most. Namely, us. And Gotham's only hero flies in the face of danger when Batman returns June 19th. Directed by Tim Burton, ready PG-13. Written by Daniel Waters and Sam Hamm. Characters by Bob Kane and Bill Finger. Starring Michael Keaton, Michelle Pfeiffer, Danny DeVito, <laughs> Christopher Walken, Michael Goff, and Pat Hingle. While Batman deals with the deformed man calling himself the Penguin, wreaking havoc across Gotham with the help of a cruel businessman, a female employee of the latter becomes the Catwoman with her own vendetta. This is where um, we, um, I think we coined the term full Burton. Oh, yeah. Um, and this was, not to get ahead of myself, but this is a classic example of audiences showing up for a an auteuristic studio picture that is mainstream enough to be popular with the masses. It makes a gajillion dollars. So for the sequel, the studio goes, okay, just go do your thing, come back before dark. And there is a less positive reception when it's full auteur. Yeah. And again, quality notwithstanding, you know, Batman v Superman as opposed to Man of Steel, although Batman v Superman was a more successful, whatever. I don't want to give that discourse. Uh, Thor, Love and Thunder, which is full you know, Taiki Wadhidi, as opposed to Thor Ragnarok, which is basically, and I think it's a very good movie, but it is a more conventional MCU movie with an auteuristic seasoning, if you will. Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 is very Oh, God, much- yes, absolutely. Jesus. Um, and yeah, there are other examples if you want, you know, if, um, I think to a certain extent, you know, Iron Man 2 is more of a John Favreau film than the first one is, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, it feels like what if Swingers in the MCU. Yeah. Um, Made swingers, that type, yeah. Um, but whatever. That's that's so, neither here nor there. Um, and there was the backlash on this one too because of the full huge, burden. And I, huge I gotta say backlash. this: going through this for this retrospective stuff, like if you paid attention from Beetlejuice to Batman to Edward Scissorhands, Batman Returns is so damn easy to see coming. Like it's the natural <laughs> extension and progression of those three movies. It's like. If you if you pay attention to like the work of a director or something instead of just um, taking in taking products, like you shouldn't be surprised. But alas, people love bubblegum and they like to talk about being an expert on bubblegum a lot. That's what we have nowadays. But like, if you were paying attention to Tim Burton, this is like okay. <laughs> but, I was you know, and I was twelve years old, and this was the first you know, quote unquote, Hollywood scandal of this nature that I paid attention to week in and week out. Mm-hmm. And I was surprised. I mean, yeah, I saw the film on opening you know, the night before, a Thursday night preview. And yeah, it was pretty, there were scary parts. It was very loud. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very grotesque and violent and macabre. But even when I was 12, I was like, in terms of body count, this is a lot less violent than the last Batman movie. Right. The Penguin doesn't kill anywhere near as many people as the Joker did. No, but he threatens to kill all the children. He uh- kills, yeah, there's a more, per- the violence is more personal. Right, which again goes in the line of the the late eighties comic books of that era, which right. were more grounded but more macabre and ghoulish, mm-hmm. where the villains had single digit body counts, but they were scary and psychotic. Mm-hmm. And um, it, this uh, like the cool thing about this, this feels nothing like the previous one in terms of plot and all that stuff. No. It is very and it feels very much per- it's perfect. Like it's not like okay, what they like last time? How can we do this again? It's not, and 
it is its own thing. Like you could man, you could watch Batman Returns without Batman and be fine. Oh yeah, I mean, the, the mayor is different. The you know it, it's it's the only connective tissue are the three you know Pat Hingle, Michael Guff, and Michael Keaton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I like that you named Pat Hingle first. <laughs> Making sure I I didn't forget. Yes. Yeah. Um, but it is very much a grim fairy tale that happens to take place in the bat. It, that also happens to be a Batman movie. Um, well, it's, it it's, is it's such a great. Um, but like exploration of Bruce Wayne too with things like because while he's struggling with just I like being Batman now and that's kind of it you yeah. know you have Max Shrek which re- represents the worst of what he could be and you have the Penguin which is another reflection of what he could have been as well if he had been bitter and horrible about his parents death and never really forgave them for a, quote unquote abandoning him and then honestly Selena Kyle is what he wishes he could be like yeah. it's it's really you know, a, a murderous vigilante with no rules and no responsibilities, and doesn't have to. You know, she she doesn't have to be Bruce Wayne to everyone. She can just yeah. go home to her apartment, and no one knows who the hell she is, and that's what he would like. Uh yeah, and it's 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 even though the film had a very mixed reception, although you know, ironically, you know, the initial wave of reviews were relatively positive. It wasn't until you know people saw the film and you know children were crying and. Mm-hmm. Be fair. It was one of those situations where it's like, on one hand, oh, you fool! Why, you know, it's a PG thirteen movie starring Batman. Didn't you see the last one? On the other hand, yeah, I kind of get it. There's like the penguin bites know. a guy's nose off, right? Well, it's like so, okay, like- this isn't a you know, this is nineteen ninety two. The notion of a film about Batman being wo- woefully inappropriate for children was still a pretty new concept, right? Um, even though, again, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves had some controversy the previous year over its violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my, I went to the movies a lot with my grandmother, my mother's mother, and the one time I went with my my grandfather was Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and he was in a very good natured, no harm, no foul way, absolutely appalled by the violence in that picture. Um, and I will I will always remember his just you know get off my lawn outrage about how violent and gruesome and and that and it is a pretty you know it's a hard PG thirteen. As is Batman Returns to a certain extent. How could they do that to my Errol Flynn? (laughs) Something like that. Um, And that's an example of where sort of like, quote unquote, media friendly discourse actually did represent the real world and made a genuine impact on the, you know, that did accurately reflect the general consensus of the film. The film opened with $47 million. It broke the opening weekend record again. Knocked off Patriot Games. Take that, Harrison. (laughs) <laughs> um, and then it dropped by a then huge 45% in its second weekend while getting a mere B from CinemaScore, which even back then, you know, it's CinemaScore. If you get anything under an A minus, you're in trouble. Um, and it would be out of the top 10 in like six weeks. And it would only make 162 million domestic to 60-ish worldwide on depending on who you ask around an $80 million budget. Again, by today's standards, it had a three multiple, you know, it basically had a three and change multiplier. It made Mm -hmm. three times its budget. Yippee skippy. Everybody's happy. But back then, you know, both in terms of expectations after the first Batman and in terms of, you know, you, you you didn't make mega budget movies to barely make your money back back then. Right. Um, It just, it was just not the way it worked. You know, generally speaking, if you have a sequel that, 
costs a lot more, but makes a lot less. Whether you make money or not, you don't make another one. Right. Um, Which we'll learn with uh, another film of Burton's coming up in two episodes. Oh, yeah. Or no, next week, I think. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I do have to. I have to note with the box box office on this. Um, we'll weave that into our conversation here. Uh, but there's no counter programming opener on this one. Everybody steered clear of it. Oh it yeah, like, don't don't go near Batman. I'm trying to remember what opened. Patriot Games was right before Patriot Games and Sister Act two opened. Uh, yeah, the, Sister the, Act one. It's Sister Act. Yeah, that oh, opened oh, yeah. after Memorial Day weekend, and that and made 141 million dollars, which pathetically. Up until Hidden Figures, like mm-hmm. five years ago, was the biggest grossing movie starring a black woman. Oh, wow. Wow. It took 30 fucking years, give or take. Wow. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Sister Act held its number two spot, and Patriots game dropped to three. Yeah, because uh, yeah, that was a yeah. leggy as hell movie. It opened with like 12 million and legged out to like 140 or something. Oh, wow. Um, Batman Returns would open... Sorry, I'm looking something up for 45, six. Yeah, yeah, 47 with previews, including the preview I was okay. at. Um, it's fine. I do remember I had a birthday party invite to see the film that Saturday. And my father on Thursday night mentioned that, you know, they're having previews on Thursday night at nine o'clock, but you don't want to see you're already going on Saturday. And even though I'm like 12, I almost said, like, do you know who the fuck I am? Huh? I didn't actually say that, but it was like, my look is like, I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Of course I want to go tonight. I don't care if I'm seeing you again on Saturday. Are you fucking kidding me? Um, my parents usually understood me better than that, but that was a rare slip up. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it dropped by 44% weekend too. For another 40, the thing is it kept dropping by over four, you know, four, over under 45% mm. for the first six weekends. So it wasn't just that it had a big drop and then leveled out. It was, you know, it was yesterday's news by July 4th, uh, where it would go up against uh, its second weekend open up against uh, was against unlawful entry um, and the re-release of Pinocchio, ironically. Hmm. And then in weekend three, it would barely come in number one over July 4th weekend against a league of its own and boomerang, which all three of these films would make over under 13.5 million or over under 13.7 million dollars and by the second weekend in july it was down to fourth place behind a league of our own a universal soldier and boomerang mm-hmm. and by the you know mid-july it was over but it was still the biggest grossing movie of the summer yep one of the biggest of the year behind eventually home alone 2 and uh aladdin and even then, it was like, okay, if we get another one of these, if we get another one of these, Burton ain't coming back. Well, yeah, he was he was already planning for a third. Like he was yeah. he was on board. He was going to do a third, and they talked him out of it, well, agreeing the, to walk. Yeah, the, the story goes that he's in the off, you know, he's in the production office or whatever, and he's talking, and it's like, and I don't know the exact feeling, but he basically says to them, "It's like you guys don't want me to come back, do you?" <laughs> They're like, eh. they were kind of in a. Are you going to tell him? Are you going to? No, you like we're, we're going like to open you choose to walk yourself. Yeah, and I remember it shocked me when Michael Keaton left because that was yeah. really shit. Yeah, uh, and you know the fact that you know in retrospect this is stupid. It's like, oh, it's going to look so different. Blah blah. blah. Then when you see the first preview of Batman Forever, it's like, oh, it's still Batman. He yeah. looks exactly the same in the suit, pretty much. Yeah. Um, yeah. which, you know, that's generally how the world should work, frankly. Yeah. 
Um, and, you know, I mean, I wrote about this two years ago, but absent the zeitgeist, cultural impact, blah, 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 you know, for most other characters had, you know, Chadwick Boseman, you know, died of cancer before Black Panther 2, you probably just would have cast somebody else of that same demographic as T'Challa for the sequel. Mm-hmm. And I I'm not going to take a yay nay on that. I mean, I there's very good reasons not to recast. One of them is that you didn't want to force the actors to pretend that he was still alive. Right. Um, but, you know, again, in a less culturally zeitgeisty franchise, you know, if Paul Rudd had passed on before Ant-Man 2, they probably just would have replaced him. Right. And I, I think it helps Batman forever that Keaton is not Batman in it. Yeah, it's 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 not. It doesn't feel like a film where that where that version of Bruce Wayne would have fit in. Well, yeah, and and, and it would feel like, oh man, Keaton's slumming it here, and and it's not like it. It allows that movie to be its thing. Yeah, and in the same way that you know, I imagine Honor Majesty's Secret Service would be a much different movie if Sean Connery it doesn't was work with Sean Connery. No, I, I have, I've said this for years, but people yeah. are like, oh man, it'd be the best one. I'm like, no. It depends on having a James Bond that isn't assured of himself. Yeah, he wasn't a dickhead. And <laughs> yeah, and you've seen Connery just, you know, picking up women in passing. What, what different would Diana Riggs, despite yeah. it being goddess Diana Rigg, yeah. it still would ring just like a honey writer or something. But when you have Lazenby and she, because it's her movie and that's the yeah. mistake it makes, um, is dropping her for like a good 40 minutes of the movie. But she carries that movie. She helps Lazenby be better, but it's it's her movie, and that's a, that's a lot of the strength of it, and that's why it makes it so good and why people enjoy it. Um, and it's not going to be any better with Connery. I think it would be worse with Connery, or you'd have yes. to do something else with that. And I'll say this also. I think Diamonds of Forever would have been a lot better with Lazenby. That's exactly it. Diamonds of Forever <laughs> would have been better with Lazenby. I think Live and Let Die might have been better with Lazenby. Yeah. Um. Because they took it took a second to figure Roger Moore out. Um, yeah. Even though I like Live and Let Die, the, when you see what they they go on to um, Man with the Golden Gun and they do not have him figured out, and it's not. Yeah. Luckily, Spy Who Loved Me figured him out for a couple films, and but yeah, I think I think Lazenby would have had a nice run. Diamonds Are Forever works with Lazenby, um, and yeah, I think Live and Let Die works with Lazenby too. But. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I apologize. Back to Batman Returns. I mean, mm-hmm. it's funny because everybody and their mother predicted that Danny DeVito would be the Penguin. You know, three, you know, the, the minute Batman. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So we, he cast Danny DeVito as a crazy. Penguin and then turns him into this horrific flipper mutant child. Yeah. So it's like, we're giving you what you think you're getting, but not really. The Penguin um, that you were expecting is on his campaign posters. Yes, exactly. That's actually, you know, it, it those posters are very reminiscent of the conventional comic book version of that. Right. And again, as an example of, is that faithful of comics? No, but it works for the movie. Yeah. Um, and I like and seeing... Let's be honest, Penguin's a boring villain. Yeah. <laughs> I like seeing Burton's... I like an ad- adaptation, a vision of somebody's things with it, and it feels... And I think Burton has enough adherence to source material that it feels true, even though he looks nothing like what the Penguin we had seen and he has a completely different kind of origin to be like, this is why he's a penguin, you know? And and it's funny because even though it's this mega budget franchise spectacular, it and Bob Roberts, which is Tim Robbins, uh, Doc, 
you know, satire from also from 1992 mm-hmm. are incredibly prescient satires of, of personality politics. Yeah. In terms yeah. of, you know, shallow, skidden deep political, you know, mongering. Right. And the joke is that, you know, the part that's aged worse is when Gotham actually turns on Penguin when he's exposed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> also, uh, Cat, Catwoman here, also Tim Burton's own vision of it. Yes. And one of the most Tim Burton characters ever. And um, it is really sad 30 years later that character is still as uniquely righteously angrily feminist as she is mm-hmm. because we've made so little progress in terms of the quality of our female characters in these blockbuster films. And this was, this was a, the hot fit. It was a Madonna, uh, Annette Bedding yeah. got the role. Like it's, it's crazy yes. in this story. So like in the previous film, we didn't want to just sit and be IMDB trivia page with it. But you know, Sean Young had the role. She got injured. Uh, this is Vicky Vale. Vicky Vale. Yes. Kim Basinger comes in. And then here, Annette Benning comes in, gets pregnant, and has to drop out of the role. And Michelle Pfeiffer gets it while Sean Young campaigns for it. There was Madonna. Um, I'm sure you can read off a t- host of names that were there. But <laughs> Michelle Pfeiffer was, was like, you were born to play this damn thing, weren't you? Because um, it's a, it's incredible. Uh, this, it's one of the best, like, I think the Burton films, you know, this, you know, contains one of the best superhero villain roles performances of all time with this cat woman. I think Nicholson's up there with his Joker. Um, but this, yeah, this is just incredible. And she is just in it all the way and not in some kind of dangerous, like, Oh, she's a method actor. I hope everybody was okay. Way. It's just, <laughs> it feels safe. It feels dangerous on screen. I, I love every second she hops on even her mousy little, dorky self beforehand and there's such i mean there's just so many brilliant artistic touches with this movie that burton throws on like when they go to the the masquerade party and they're bruce wayne and selena kyle show up and they're the only ones not wearing masks to the mask party and it's just so amazing like all and, and this movie just i don't know this and i love both this and batman and i think you know what you know one's my favorite one's just a p- brilliant piece of filmmaking that just you're never going to see this again oh god no and that's um, that's it's my favorite i think it's the best batman movie ever made and i say that as somebody who loves the dark knight and adores batman and really likes batman begins mm-hmm. but i think part of it is what you said it's so unique unto itself partially because of the backlash yeah. I mean, the reaction to this film sort of ensured that films of this nature would not look and feel like this ever again yeah i mean uh, two but the burton ones are my two probably favorite superhero comic book movies ever made the, yeah. the first two burtons and i know probably technically some better adaptations or movies have been made but i'm sorry you're never you're never topping them with me such personality such an informed stuff that informed me like i'll be ignorant these are these are it for me like if i could take only two i'd take both batmans yeah Uh, over donner superman over you know like all that stuff so um it's just it's just how it goes and yeah, it's not hard to find defending, not hard to defend these <laughs> as to why, but um, no, it is. It is. It was incredibly groundbreaking at the time, backlash or not, because it felt like the first. It genuinely felt like the first would be blockbuster that also felt like an art house film. Right. 
Yeah. And something I've always felt is that I think to a certain extent, a lot of these recent comic book slash franchise films mm-hmm. degrade on a curve because we already know who these characters are and it is exciting or interesting to see these characters we know in these specific situations or in mm-hmm. a film of relative quality. Right. Batman Returns is a film that if it hadn't been based on the most popular, some of the most popular characters of all time would probably have been hailed as an art house masterpiece. Oh, yeah. I mean, can you imagine watching this film not without the, you know, decades and decades of, you know, familiarity with Batman? Right. I mean, yeah. you know, watching it as an original film would just be mind boggling. Yeah. No, true. And then uh, like he invents stuff like Max Shrek is a cool thing to invent. Uh, and it works and walking works well. It's like, what is going on with this craziness? <laughs> and of yeah. course, we always we both love the Bruce Wayne. What are you doing dressed as the Batman? <laughs> it's walking full, you know, it's full walking. Full it walking. Was right, right around the time that he was, you know, starting to sort of have fun with his persona. Right, right, right. It was about the time they were about to break some of the classic. Well, they were, Walken was about to break, and then later in the decade, or early in the 2000s, they broke De Niro to where, yeah. oh, he's a funny guy now. And this was the first time, to my knowledge, I had seen Chris Walken in anything. And when I first was like, is he a bad actor? Because this is weird. And, of course, yeah. you know, I eventually came to appreciate it. It's not like I ever disliked the work. It's, it was so unnatural and you know obviously it's the syntax the way he talks right. the way he acts and then you're but, like oh that guy played a bond villain i bet that movie was yeah. great <laughs> it's funny thing is i i think i just by default had seen a view to a kill before i saw batman returns but i okay. two and two together because right. i even when i was a kid i was like this one isn't very good <laughs> yeah but showed it on tv though so like got to watch living it. daylights was better than this yeah so um so yeah, so we—I mean—we already went over the box office. Uh, there is more. It's Scott and I talk about this movie too, not as much as the first Batman, but there's commentaries out there in the world, and probably other conversations you can find in articles written by both of us about Batman Returns. Um, so. They are both, you know, regardless of their impact on the culture and the impact on Hollywood and blah blah blah. They are both aspirational blockbusters. Yes, um, and now. We will move on to our third Christmas movie of the episode. Oh, God. In a row. Uh, the Nightmare Before Christmas. So he's trying to catch up. He's trying to go, hey, Shane Black. Gotcha. <laughs> uh, Imagine a fantastic journey to the very edge of reality. Surprised, aren't you? Imagine a world where night lasts forever. I am the Pumpkin King! And every shadow has a life of its own. You make flesh crawl! Touchstone Pictures presents a movie where anything can happen. Imagine what your parents will think. Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, rated PG. Now playing at a theater near you. Directed by Henry Selleck, written by Carolyn Thompson on a story, and characters by Tim Burton, adapted by Michael McDowell. The voices appearing in the film are both Chris Sarandon and Danny Elfman play the lead as Jack Skellington. Catherine O'Hara, William Hickey, Glenn Shaddix, Paul Rubens, Ken Page, Edward Ivory, and Greg Proops. So we get a bunch of, um, we get some Beetlejuice people back here. Paul Rubens joins back again after Batman Returns, Peewee's Big Adventure. Uh, Jack Skellington, king of Halloween Town, discovers Christmas Town, but his attempts to bring Christmas to his home causes confusion. Not written and not directed. Uh, but written, produced by Burton. If he had, if he hadn't been the hottest director in Hollywood at the time, he surely would have directed this. 
Because uh, it's took quite years possibly. and years and years. But it's to make. it's it's funny because it's obviously it's based on his sketches, it's based mm-hmm. on his ideas. But from what I gather, he was not only did he not direct it, he wasn't that present during mm-hmm. the production of this picture. It was, it was it's it's and again that's not a criticism or anything it's just you know whatever but this is this is a film with you know it's it's henry Selleck has a a unfortunate habit of ending up with really really good or hopefully good stop motion animation films that are sold on somebody else's name gotcha. like the upcoming wendell and whatever which is you know again it's not a jordan peele picture it's a henry no. Selleck picture this is also back Coraline, at, which is the yeah. best stop motion movie ever made. I don't oh know. yeah, Coraline, Paranormal. The Leica, Leica is the best animation studio. Fight yeah. me, fight yeah. me. No, I agree. They are five for five in my heart. Um, <laughs> Kubo and the Two Strings rules. Every, I mean, even Box Trolls, their their lowest one is still better than most. That has aged very well. It has. You consider what it's about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Burton's back at Disney here. Yeah. And this is a year after Batman Returns. Mm-hmm. And what's funny about this, especially if you're too young to remember, Disney was scared shitless of this movie. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, they, they gave them the money to make it. But like, they were sure that the backlash that greeted Batman Returns would be repeated with this picture. And you know, I'm guessing it's a matter of, you know, the film was in process before Batman Returns came out and yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, stop motion takes a while. Um they it got a PG rating, which was unusual back then. Yeah, for, for animated. Yeah, it's like, Ooh. and they did not release it under the Walt Disney banner. They released it under Touchstone. Yep, and they were terrified right up to the you know opening weekend that it would either traumatize children or, more worrisomely, annoy their parents. Mm-hmm. And this film came out in mid October, and the Lion King trailer was not attached to this picture. It was attached to the Three Musketeers, which would open about two weeks later. Do it all three weeks later. For one and all for love. <laughs> hey, that movie rocks. I like that movie. I saw it in the theater. I liked it. Yeah, a lot. no, I like it a lot. It's, I'm surprised nobody talks about that a lot to this yeah, day. Yeah, that, that is, is such one a cool that, like, movie. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I know it's not. Oh, the Richard Lester ones are better or whatever. I can find whatever. But right. as far as again, it's another PG-rated movie that's actually Oliver Platt, Keeper Sutherland, Chris O'Donnell. Way. Oh. So fun. Yeah, that was my introduction to Chris or Oliver Platt. Yeah. Oh um, man, that movie is a joy. Yeah, it's and again, it, you've got Tim Curry basically devouring scenery by the pound because he can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you have Michael Wincott doing basically the same damn character he played in Robin Hood. Right, right. <laughs> but slightly more dashing. Right. Um, um so this one and going with the Burton thing yeah, sorry, here yeah. too. Um this is more of his 50s, 60s suburbia influence, but in a yes. different way here. Um, it's a love letter to like Rankin Bass specials from back in the day that you would watch. Like, yes. And because those were always Christmas, but never Halloween or anything like that. They had other specials too, but these are like the Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer, those stop motion things. This is his twist on that, in my opinion. Um, it's got songs. And yeah, this is, we've had music and great scores prevalent in these movies, but this is our first traditional musical. Yes, that we've and had. I'll be honest. I even when I was a kid, I you know I saw this opening weekend. Yada yada. I like it, but I, I honestly I like Corpse Ride better. Okay, uh, for the reason being that even when I was a kid, I was like, Jack is a fucking lunatic. Why is anyone listening to him? Mm. Why does he have? You know, what exactly is his endgame here? What does he think he's going to pull off here? And even as a kid, is like, are we supposed to be rooting for him? Because like Sally's the only one with sense here. Yeah. 
And it's, it's, I, you know, you could argue it's, it's, it's part of the movie, blah, blah, blah. But dramatically, I always found it very unsatisfying that like you're, it's like you're watching somebody slowly light himself on fire. Right. It's someone desperately. Say, wow. What fun. He's, you know, he's tying up the dynamite. Neat. Just wanting to do something different and wanting to be someone else for yeah. something. Um, the setup to it might be a bit rushed, but we're, I mean, we're in yeah, stop motion land. Movie. We're in stop motion land. You can only yeah. do so much. Um, I, yeah, I've always just kind of just gotten into it. It's a movie where you enjoy the songs, you take in the, yes. the, the brilliance of the animation. Um, and just, how how it works in in the funny it's 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 pretty funny too oh, yeah. i remember the trailer killed uh back in the day with the kid who pulled the shrunken head out of yes. the bag with the parents that was that was absolutely killer um, i will say and again i've, I've seen it many times because it's mm-hmm. an easy watch it's like an hour long um in retrospect, it is interesting in that it is a conventional Burton outcasty character who's a freak mm-hmm. who actually lives a bunch of other amongst a bunch of other freaks. Yeah, who lives in a neighborhood that's basically is you know anti suburbia who wants to live in suburbia basically. Yeah, it's almost the inverse of a conventional. It's it's a conventional Burton protagonist with the opposite goals of a usual Burton protagonist. And suburbia is not as welcoming this time. It's no. we don't, we don't want you here for good reason. Those yeah. kids are scary. Um, <laughs> and you know, it's, 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 the songs are great. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are essential to the movie, which is nice. You know, it's not just a matter of people stopping to sing about their feelings for two minutes when, you know, a wink and a nudge already established that character development. <clears throat> right. Um, or D. Evan Hansen, for that matter, which I don't hate, but nonetheless. Um, I do know that he and Elfman had a falling out of some kind over this movie. I don't know the details, but I know they did not. He did not. Uh, Howard Shore did Ed Wood, but they mm-hmm. would apparently mend fences in times for Mars attacks. Yeah, Ramey and Elfman had a fallout, too. Yeah. So. Maybe the problem's Elfman. I don't know. I have no idea. Um, Let us know, Danny. We want to hear your story. <laughs> You still look really good for like a 2000 year old man. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, no, I mean, I, I enjoy this movie. I appreciate it for what it was. It's funny. The film came out and it made, it actually opened only like 500 screens and it yeah. did about 6 million bucks of so great per screen average. Mm-hmm. And then it was the top movie for the next two weekends, you know, close to Halloween. Yeah. And it made 50 million domestic. And then it's been re-released so many times over the last 25 years that it's made 75 million. Yeah. Actually, no. Is that seventy-five or is it ninety? Actually, I did a. Thing. I've got a box office. Mojo has it at fifty. That was the original cinema release. That's the original been, release. Yeah. I just typed Nightmare on Elm Street without thinking about it. Go figure. Yeah, seventy-seven total, ninety-one okay. worldwide, uh, on a budget of I think like. I mean, it wasn't a particularly expensive movie. Yeah, but it wasn't necessarily like a huge hit back then. No, it wasn't. It was a solid studio mm. programmer. Yeah. But over over many many years, you know, Disney sort of brought it back in the fold. Mm. Yeah, you know, they stopped being ashamed of it, I guess, and it became a very big focal point in terms of selling Disney stuff to older kids and adults. Yeah, you know, it basically you know we joke about you know Tim Burton inventing Odd Topic. Well, this is a big way of how Disney got into that demographic. 
Right. And, you know, for a film that they were ashamed of or scared of in 1993 by at least I'd say 15 years out, it was a, not only was it brought back into the fold, it was a major part of Disney's growing emphasis, you know, domination of pop culture. Mm -hmm. Certainly more so than Hocus Pocus. This is better than Hocus Pocus. Uh, Most things are. Uh, but yeah, though, it's it's funny how this is like, nor- like because they started playing this in the El Capitan annually. Mm-hmm. It comes back. And Greg, Greg Magoon, who's a guest on the show frequently, he uh, does the designs and stuff for the interiors of the, uh, he helps work on those for the El Capitan. He's held on to these, uh, he's held, actually held these original um, molds and things for him. He says they look like, they look like crap, but they photograph really well. <laughs> stop motion and, no go ahead i'm sorry no but um and uh, you know disney has embraced it and they were like my my kids love this movie they they like it a lot and my daughter when um was it our first trip to yeah our first trip to disney world mm-hmm. and the mouse ears she picked were sally's the uh, that's a really cool looking mouse ears too and if you visit the haunted mansion between halloween and christmas it's mm-hmm. all entirely redone via Nightmare for Christmas stuff. Not, not, um, not at Disney World. Oh, is that I, a Disneyland thing? Because I've been there between, I, I've been there at Halloween time, and it was not Nightmare Before Christmas. Fair enough. Oh, so maybe that's just Disneyland. <laughs> um, but yeah, and it's 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 remarkable. And again, as someone that lived through its release, like you know, it's it's it's, uh oh, mm-hmm. parents are gonna be scared. Blah blah blah. And not only did that not happen, but became kind of a cult sensation almost of its own. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's I remember that there all of a sudden the resurgence came and it's just like, whoa, there's other people like this movie too. Or it's that big. It's that popular. But this is why I always talk about there's these kid movies that'll come out and be like, eh, whatever. And then you let those kids grow up. Then they become writers. Then they become... You know, merchandisers, they become things like that, and they want the things they love to yep. they want to do stuff, and there it is. Like I, I'm right now saying Rob Zombies the Monsters. Just wait. <laughs> That's my thing. Cause and I've actually it's funny, I've had conversations with a lot of just regular people I work with or, or that I know. People like that are online stuff, they seem to like it. And so I have a feeling kids will like it even like even more. So I just have a feeling let's just Let's wait on that one. Give it 10, 12 years, 15. Let's see what happens. Um, but yeah, Nightmare for Christmas is that case. Um, like a, like your Hocus Pocuses and stuff like that, where mm, it goes away for a while, but now it's just normal and everywhere all the time. And we're not going to get a second Nightmare Before Christmas, which is great. Yeah, that's, I would say, one reason why it endures is that it's not, it's merely its own singular thing. Yeah, exactly. Um I mean, your sequel to that would be like them doing uh, the Corpse Bride or Frankenweenie, yeah. where you get another stop motion. This is why I talk about with like comedy movies. Should we don't need sequels? Just get the gang back together to make another funny movie. That should be your comedy yeah. sequel. You know, it's it's you know, Tommy Boy is a hit, so you bring the gang back together Black for, Black, for Black Sheep, which to be fair flopped, but I digress. Mm-hmm. Um, Adam Sandler doesn't do Billy Madison too. He does Happy Gilmore. Like that's. That's what you do, um, in the comedy world. I think works better because yeah, yeah. That's that's a perfect example. He went from one original comedy to another, mm-hmm. more or less. As far as I know, they were all original. Airplane's Sorry. good. Do top secret. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, and nobody sees that. So, yeah, which, you know, police squad opinion, bombs on TV, borrow money to make a movie out of it. In my opinion, is the superior film is oh. secret, but that's a. I can't go that far, but I do love Top Secret. I love Top Secret. And I feel terrible picking that as Val Kilmer's best movie because it implies that he peaked on the first time. Uh. <laughs> it's like, no, I like plenty of your other movies. I just think, you know, Top Secret's my favorite. Right. Um, so I w- watching it, the, this is an interesting role specifically for Catherine O'Hara as Sally. She yeah. doesn't have any roles like this ever. Like there's always something quirky to, or, or comedically quirky to roles. This is a, a very damsel type role, just straightforward, um, romantic lead. Like, and when she get romantic lead, it'd be in like a Christopher Guest movie. And I was like, that's not your, yes. I mean, she plays what she like what a year off from playing Kevin's mom at home alone or something. Was that 91 or 92? 90? It was 90. So, she, I mean, this just is it's yeah, it's not traditional for Catherine O'Hara. This is a big, interesting, and it doesn't sound exa- And Chris Sarandon, like, if you were to close your eyes and guess who it is, it doesn't really scream Chris Sarandon sounding either for Jack Skellington to me, but. No, I mean, it's, it's again, it's a, it's sort of a nice example of, you know, not necessarily going after celebrities for the voiceover. Right, exactly. This is just before The Lion King, which kind of popularized that. And then, you know, sort of Shrek kind of sealed the deal. True, true. Um, um, I do. So you mentioned that parents were interested in this or whatever. My parents didn't take me to see this. My uncle took me <gasps> to see it. My uncle Mark. Because, well, I always talk about yeah, my uncle and my grandma took me to the cool movies. <laughs> my, my parents, once in a while you know would be that but um so he took me to it and i always remember this i always remember the night um because he took me to it and after the movie he was like hey you want to go let's go get dinner or whatever and he's like have you ever had coney island and it was this like is this coney dog place in fort wayne indiana was and it was downtown and i never really go downtown much we'd go downtown at christmas time to see that they had this big santa light thing on a building which was right next to coney island so we went there went to coney island it was great blah 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 had fun it was like it, it was a staple in town come home and i tell my parents that they got irate at my uncle because he's he's older than me by like Wow, oh, how many years old? Like maybe 13, 14 years or whatever. So he's he's my mom's baby brother or whatever. And like he was still like, I guess his twenties when he did this. And like because it was downtown or whatever, scary, they they were like irate with him that he took me down there and like, you probably scared that I'm like, I wasn't scared at all. I just went downtown. I we ate and they were I just remember they were furious with him. Oh. At a place that they would later just take me on their own all the time. So it, yeah, I just I will never forget seeing the Nightmare Before Christmas because of that happening, um, <laughs> and them just getting irate. So Uncle Bark, I was there for you. I stood up for you as a ninety three, as a eleven year old, um, but almost twelve, almost twelve year old. But yeah, all good. I'll never, I never forget that one. And the time you took me to Masters of the Universe, and you told me we'd only missed like the first five minutes, but we really missed like forty. Um, oh God, there's like only an hour left, or something like that. Yeah, it was because um, they were already on Earth when I was when we walked in, and um, I rented it on VHS when it came out. I'm like, I don't remember any of this, and it was a lot. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, but that's a, that's another tale for another day. Um, but yeah, so Nightmare Before Christmas. Uh, did we talk the box office? Let's go into that. Yeah, 50, 55, 50 on original. Yeah. It's been re-released a gajillion times. Yep. Um, Seventy-seven total uh, domestic, ninety-one worldwide. It was uh, a twenty-ish it? budget. It's a solid mm-hmm. hit, and obviously, it's been reissued many times on VHS, DVD, and the like. Mm-hmm. In fact, a lot of the short films that we discussed in our first episode, I first got to see on a special edition DVD release, The Nightmare Before Christmas. Gotcha. Because Disney, to their credit, put several of them on, Frank and Weenie, Vincent, and a mm-hmm. couple of the others. Yeah, it was uh, the movies that were out around it at the time of the box office were like uh, Demolition Man, uh, Beverly Hillbillies, Cool Runnings, Rudy. Oh, Judgment Night was in the top 10 mm-hmm. then, and The Good Son. Um <laughs> Good Son. The good son. Uh, but yeah, that, those are some of the movies out and around uh, the time of it uh, making its run in the Demolition box Man. Basically, the first non you know, the first summer blockbuster to not open during summer. Right, right, right. That's that's true. Um, but yeah, so as mentioned at the top of the show, from Beetlejuice to Nightmare Before Christmas, it's very distinct. This is Burton film. Uh, look, there's no mistaking it. Like you know, this is this is Tim Burton. So next week. Uh, we're going to see him go kind of away from that expectation a little bit into other, it's him, but it's a different side of him we haven't explored yet. Um, as we look into Ed Wood, Mars Attacks, Sleepy Hollow, and Play of the Apes. One of those is very much him, um, but <laughs> yeah. But the other three are very different stereotypically um, speaking and we, yeah we get it and we, you know we're gonna see this run come to an end here um <laughs> during this the, that episode um one of these but, films is so i felt so unburton like i had to see it twice to make sure i hadn't missed something right uh, probably guess which one it is <laughs> so yeah we're gonna i mean we're the, i think that's gonna be an interesting episode to talk about rather than our normal like oh i love this i love this i love this and, and, Yay, and, batman oh and batman brandon scott talked batman again it must uh, this be is tuesday the, the 2022 edition um <laughs> you probably got some new stuff in there here and there i think I maybe hope so. i hope so so scott thank you again this has been a joy we're it's almost, always a pleasure almost, Midway through next episode, we'll be halfway through this. I, I'm digging this a lot. It's been um, this was the this was the one of the easiest episodes because I'm very familiar with all one of the four. longest too, and one of the longest. We had a lot to say. Um, <laughs> Scott's like wrap it up, Brandon. But yeah, so where can people keep up with you? What's going on this week of uh, in November um, with oh, Scott God. Mendelson? Uh, I am currently at the Wrap. I am now one of their staff reporters, and I am at. Twitter at, at Scott Mendelson. Dot com. Whatever. All right. Well, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brand4KUHD, written work at YSOBlue.com. Uh, there's more from the Brand Peter Show this week, of course, with Old Space Show. But until then, stay film. Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peter Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Osman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. 
Additional information on this and other episodes at brandonpetershow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at brandonpetershow.com. The show is available on Apple Music, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found.